BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. You're listening to a Weeby Geeks Network podcast. Another world. Another time. In the age of wonder. There was once a dream. You could only whisper it. Anything more than a whisper. And it would vanish. A battle between good and evil. You don't know the power of the dark side. Where shall I find a new adversary so close to my own level? Try the local sewer. You know of the rebellion against the Empire? The Avengers. Earth's mightiest heroes. Peace means having a bigger stick than the other guy. One of these days, I'm going to have a stick of my own. I'm Groot. Welcome to the Neverland Podcast. The podcast for lovers of Disney, Pixar, Marvel, and Star Wars. I'm glad you're here to tell us these things. Please welcome your host, Jeremy. I thought he'd be taller. Yeah, I can fly. All it takes is faith and trust. Well, if it isn't the star-spangled man with a plan, what is your plan today? Up to Neverland! Greg Reisman wrote that uh, he started at Walt Disney Television Animation in July of 1989 as a staff assistant. And he continues that four days after he walked in through the front door, his boss had departed for a two-week trip to Europe that lasted for six months as he was putting together animation studios for them in England and in France. In the meantime, he had been thrown into the proverbial deep end of the division's current programming and development departments. He goes on to say, a number of people helped to acclimate me to my new surroundings. But it was Tad Stones who took me under his wing to teach me about how an animated television series was developed. And the laboratory he taught me was in the creation of Darkwing Duck, or as we called it then, Double O Duck. Yes, the series went through multiple iterations as it morphed from being a James Bondy and spy show to something more along the lines of the shadow. I like to think my background in writing and editing comic book superheroes and their shenanigans, was of some use. But mostly, I sat back and watched Tad and his team work their Morgana-worthy magic. The show sold, and Tad went on to produce it. I gave a few suggestions every so often and helped Tad find and hire his amazing writing staff. But mostly, I was off developing other things, (coughs) gargoyles, and what that meant was that when the show hit the air, I got to sit back and enjoy it like any other fan. And so, Neverlanders, please welcome the great Tad Stones. Woohoo! Applause, applause. I'll have to add a well, Thank you, thank you, and thank you. <laughs> but uh, uh, so, doing my research, though, I found you've done a lot more than uh, we all know you, of course, from Darkwing Duck, but uh, doing a bit of research, you've got quite the history with Disney and going way back. So, I kind of want to just dive into everything. 
Sure. So yeah, I started back in uh, 1974, mm-hmm. and I was over in features. So yeah, uh, found that you were under the tutelage of Eric Larson. Yes, Eric. There was a years later. There was a formal training program, Disney University classes, and all of that. But when it started, when they finally decided that they were going to keep animation open, um, because that was not always a sure thing, um, they created a training program that was basically Eric Larson uh, working with, you know, the trainees in the next room, and you had eight weeks. Uh, divide up into two four-week stints, and you had four weeks to do a little piece of test animation. Um, and if you survived that, you did have four weeks to do a second piece. And if you survived that, you generally would become an in-betweener. Now, <laughs> depending on who you were and what your skill set was, you might end up going in a slightly different area. But uh, for most of us, at least the guys that I hung with, we went into in-betweening, which I stunk at. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so it's Don Bluth once said that the way the training program is set up, it's kind of like trying to learn a musical instrument and playing in a band at the same time. <laughs> and so a lot of us came in with a knowledge of animation just because we had read books. The classic that every animator had was uh, the Walter Foster series of art books. They had one mm. by Preston Blair, which was the art of animation. And we all had that. And we all knew how to draw the goofy character, the cute character, the tough guy, and the uh, walk cycles and the basics of animation, you know, from the bouncing ball to drag and overlap. Um, so if you knew that going in, it's, you know you're in decent shape and then it's how many times you take it into Eric to get, you know, anything else from him. And of course we could call up any reel of film out of any feature to watch on the movieola because this was well before videotapes. Um, (laughs) So I don't know what it would be like uh, for somebody who didn't know animation at all. There were guys we were with who I thought, didn't know that much but they you know it seemed to be some people had a natural talent for it had you always wanted to work with disney in animation yeah the uh my father worked for carnation company and uh so it had a disneyland connection and we would go to the park once a year for that company picnic uh which would be held on the picnic grounds which are now pirates of the caribbean in anaheim um it was always weird. I, it just came to me recently, and I've said it in a couple interviews, that I can remember everybody in a tent playing bingo. And it's, <laughs> and it's one of those things where it didn't occur to me at the time, because I was just a little kid. But it's like, you, you know, Disneyland is like right over there. It's like, <laughs> it's like 40 yards from this is the gate to get in through the back way, you know. And ultimately, we did. Um so I got to see Disneyland, you know, once a year, plus seeing Disneyland, the TV show. I loved the scenes where, where the episodes where Walt would go behind the scenes, uh, not just for the park, but how animation worked. Um, and that's at Disneyland is where they had an art of animation exhibit. And I got the original edition of the Bob Thomas art of animation book. Oh, cool. actually. 
actually, I take it back. I, I must have the second edition because I've been told that the first edition, the last chapter is really depressing because Walt is saying the future oh. is kind of audio animatronics and they don't know anything. And then the second one came out, and that's the one I have anyway, where the Xerox process had happened and suddenly they could afford to do feature films still. And uh, they tested it out on Sleeping Beauty uh, and then, of course, did 101 Dalmatians, which are direction wise and just as a movie, I think, is one of their strongest films. Yeah. So suddenly it was optimistic. And yes, there was still a future in animation. So, yeah, I always wanted to work at Disney. But as I got older, my feeling was it's the only place to work sure. because nobody else <laughs> is even doing short subjects, it's just TV stuff. And that's not full animation. And I you know, just thinking maybe I try going into comic books. Uh, <laughs> actually, at the time, that was very accurate. Basically, Disney had their guys who were the same guys who worked on Snow White, Pinocchio, and all those. Um, but it wasn't till what probably was my late high school years or even into my college years that they started up this little training program. Um, and I just happened to hear about it because my girlfriend's sweet mate um, was Tori Atencio, whose father was ex Atencio, oh, a layout oh, wow. artist and effects guy who worked with Ward Kimball and all the space shows and mm -hmm. then became a major name at uh, WED, now known as Imagineering. Right. Uh, and that girlfriend is now my wife. Well, cool. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, that was, the, that was the random connection that I made to find out that you know, Tori said to me, you ought to try out for the training program. And she said, you call it uh, Don Duckwall. And it's like, really, Donald Duckwall? So it's not a name that you're going to forget. Um, and I just called for, uh, really, for information. He assumed I was calling to bring in an interview. And I was not an art major. I've been an art major my freshman year. And then all my English teachers wanted me to move to English for writing. And I ended up changing to my major to humanities because it felt like it seemed like I could do both. It would I could do art and writing. And what I ended up doing, all the art I did was like three-dimensional art. I became a TA in ceramics, uh, which ultimately paid off. Um, and I never did take a writing course. Um, however, so senior year, um, I am, this is probably, I don't know, February, March, April, maybe. Um, anyway, I, I find out about this and they say, yeah, so bring in your uh, portfolio of, you know, uh, life drawing and action poses and sketches. And it's like, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, well, OK, we'll see you next Thursday. Um, <laughs> so I had none of that. Uh, but luckily, the head of the art department had gone on sabbatical, and the her replacement was my ceramics teacher <laughs> that I was a TA for. And he made and he loved Disney. He could even do the goofy yell. Um, so he demonstrated, you know, <laughs> um, and so he was totally supportive and had me sit in on life drawing classes, and I, you know. Tried to draw off TV screens and things like that. I went in. They said, okay, we need more sketches. Um, I, again, went, watched sports things off uh, television. Cheated a bit by looking at 
my friends uh, Sports Illustrated, which had key poses I could like sketch. Um, anyway, and was accepted in the training program. So that was um, April or May, and I started at Disney three days after graduation. Wow! Oh, wow! And they, and they said. You know, at the time, you don't get a vacation for another year. You sure you don't want to take a break? And I said, I I can't enjoy anything if I don't know whether I have the job or not. Right. Uh, and I got the job. Became an in betweener and almost got fired because I was a really bad in betweener. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, you could always have ended up drawing the Flash. I heard you were a big fan of the Flash. Well, I was a fan of DC's Silver Age in general. Those were the comics that I grew up with. So when we eventually flash forward to the Darkwing years, it was great that Greg not only had a comics background, you know, of more recent comics, but he knew all the Silver Age tropes that I was talking about when I was playing around with Darkwing. So anyway, back up to it really quick. Uh, So I was on the Rescuers as an in-betweener. Got moved up to uh, breakdown artist finally, and then uh, showed a personal test and got to assistant animator. I have one scene I animated in the film of Bernard Mouse walking across a desk and looking over his shoulder at a cuckoo clock that surprises him. Um, but then I realized that I really rather figure out what the characters did instead of making them do it, which is the definition of story. Uh, and you have to realize how small feature animation not was at that time. Feature animation, not counting ink and paint, was like 65 people. Mm. 65 people were turning out the Disney legacy, basically. Wow. You know, So Robin Hood had come out just you know, while I was in college, and they were working on The Rescuers. And then Fox and Hound, I did story. Uh, and then they had me do an educational film and kind of working on an educational film that I ended up producing. Um, they were creating Epcot center at the time and which is also a mixture of education and entertainment. Right. (laughs) So I ended up going to wed. So I was basically going in all those places that Walt showed us on the old Disneyland and then world of color TV show. Um, and my, I did three pavilions basically at all. Uh, one was a never happened, but the first was working on the transportation pavilion with Ward Kimball. We shared like an, I don't know, eight by 14 room for about oh, wow. nine months. That was amazing. That's when I should have been keeping a diary. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I had little kids. What can I say? You don't go home and say, oh, excuse me, I have to write down my thoughts for the day. Um, <laughs> And then for a brief time, worked with Tim Delaney for the Space Pavilion. And most of our time was talking them out of this terrible Space Pavilion concept that they had that was totally unworkable. And in that time, I got to meet George Lucas. You know, that was fun. Uh, I think it was after Star Wars pre-Empire, somewhere in there. Um, can't be sure. I should, I should actually figure it out someday. Yeah, I would uh, say it probably was because Epcot opened in what, 1981. And so, yeah, about the time probably all the developments going on in Epcot seems about the time he'd be developing Empire. So that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and then after that work with Tony Baxter and Tom Morris and Barry Braverman on the Imagination Pavilion. And then right after that, Right when Tony said, well, now's the fun part. You actually get to build the thing. 
um, I went back to the studio to produce the um, Epcot Center specials, which of course oh. never happened oh. <laughs> because it, they were documentaries and the management was still operating, I think, mentally as if Walt was still alive and the networks were still begging for him. Because if you know your Disney history, as I'm sure most of the guys listening do, um, everybody wanted Walt to do a TV show for him. And he always held him off until he came up with the idea of the park. And he said, okay, I will do an anthology show, but it has to be named Disneyland. And every once in a while, I will talk about the literal Disneyland that I am building. And they said yes, and ABC put it on the air. However, <laughs> when they go to the networks to say, oh, we're pitching these documentaries, uh, the network said, we, we have our own news division that can produce low-rated documentaries. Plus, back then, unlike now, new cars came out, new models, every year in, like the, in two weeks in September. And to coincide with that, that's when all the new television started. So it was like within two or three weeks, every new show debuted. There was no debuting in January or summer season. That was it. Um, so Disney was basically saying, no, no, two weeks into your new season, let, why don't you take off your uh, all your new shows you're trying to sell and put on this <laughs> documentary about the land? Uh, so that went away i mean actually the companies liked what i did with the documentaries because originally there was going to be one per pavilion and instead i pitched what if instead of just making pavilion make it future human which would be about all the ways our bodies could change between and talk about cloning and cybernetics and and um you know, artificial intelligence and and gene splicing and whatever. And then the next was the future home, which would be a lot about home computers in a large point uh, or a large part of it, which is so common now. Yeah. Um, then there was future city and then future Earth. The only problem with the concept is future Earth was future Earth was pretty depressing because it was like overpopulation, <laughs> and, you know, climate change. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, the uh, they never got going. So I kind of helped out consulting in TV, ended up back in features, and they said, um, you've had too many raises since you've been gone. We can't bring you back You know, at that level. You're going to have to take a huge cut. Instead, I worked on you know some people over in um, merchandising and licensing, consumer products, basically, they felt like they needed television to sell products because you can't do it with just a movie coming out every five years. Yeah. Uh, and they had, they wanted to put a group together to, to brainstorm ideas. And one of the characters they had was sport goofy, who was a goofy character into soccer and very big in Europe. And the other I pitched was after hearing the first, discussion i pitched mickey and the space pirates oh. um, but basically i came back we had the second meeting i don't know four weeks later or less uh and i came back with two full-size four by eight foot storyboards covered in animation paper and every sheet of paper had like three marker 
color sketches on it. So one was about Scrooge McDuck and trying to get this trophy, and that became the sport goofy one, Soccer Mania, and the other one was Mickey and the Space Pirates. So um, had you been a fan of sport goofy? Uh, had you been a fan of all the old Scrooge McDuck comics, the original stuff as well? Then, well, you got to realize it, it, that was just part of culture back then. Ah. It wasn't like were you a fan of? It's like. Well, of course, everybody read Scrooge McDuck comics and, you know, you'd, those are back in ancient times where you'd get a haircut <laughs> every two weeks. And at the barbershop, there would always be comics there, um, you know, just to keep the kids quiet. And, you know, there was always Disney comics there. Um, so, yeah, I c- certainly knew, you know, all that stuff. But it wasn't the same as being a fan today where you're collecting them all and yeah. you know, getting a complete set or anything like that. Although there uh, are people striving to now try to get sets of that old yeah. stuff. <laughs> well, definitely. So I certainly knew who, who Scrooge was and all that and you know, and knew the old cartoons very well. Uh, anyway, that project kind of had fits and starts. I storyboarded the whole thing and then it went away for a bit I and and then it came back and as kind of a training group or a training project for a group of creators um, who supposedly would then go on to do Roger Rabbit. And those guys were uh, Daryl Van Sitters, who ultimately left Disney, set up his own studio. Uh, then there was uh, Mike Giamo, who I recent credits, uh, fairly recent, is like art director on Frozen, Joe Ramped. Huh. Who was oh, yeah. you know the head of story at Pixar? Chris Buck, who you know directed Tarzan and uh, Frozen, and you know. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about guys who became heavy hitters while yeah. on this goofy little project. Well, pardon the pun. Um, <laughs> anyway, they didn't get to finish it, yet. and that group had done a little some pieces of animation that were supposed to be in the documentaries that we got started because of just timing. And then the documentaries went away and we were stuck with little sections of animation, which we cut together. And it was those guys who had the wacky idea of having it narrated by Mr. Future, which was the interior of Abe Lincoln's head. Oh, (laughs) so they had a, if you went over and visited, you know, I forgot where they kept it, whether it was at uh, Imagineering or somewhere on the studio. To dis- to demonstrate animatronics, they had this mechanical head on a box, uh, and it was the inside of Mr. Lincoln, uh, just to show the movements and the eyes and things like that. Uh, well, they put a bow tie on him, and the voice was Phil Proctor, and uh, he was our host, Mr. Future. Uh, so Fun with Mr. Future is a short cartoon that was basically made of the odds and ends left over from our documentaries. Wow. Anyway, so that, that group was supposed to then go do a larger project. Um, but then, you know, Roger Rabbit became a much bigger project. Um, and then Richard Williams was brought in. Um, so that group disbanded, went to, you know, different areas. Uh, some left Disney. They did break little toaster and whatever. Uh, and then Soccer Mania had finally its third run through. I mean, Daryl and the guys had cut out a lot of my story. Uh, basically, a lot of the personality stuff um, that in some ways would have made it closer to like a DuckTales story. But really said, no, we're making it like a seven minute short subject. 
you know, so it's all it's physical gags and things like that. But then it became a training pro- project at Features um, that I had nothing to do with. And they were, and actually Ward was brought in as a consultant to work with some of the young guys. Um, anyway, that's what ended up on TV. Uh, the funny story there, for me anyway, was it debuted just as they were sweating out, finishing up DuckTales to get it on the air. And of course, if you look at it, you, if you squint, it looks like DuckTales. It does, uh, yeah. Uh, I got called into the boss's office. And he was so irate because here's my name in the in the front credits, a story. <laughs> it's like, and I said, oh, yeah, I saw that it, because I seen it on TV. And it was like, hey, I got a credit. Um, he said, oh, yeah, your name was right there. And then I realized that they were angry at me for somehow possibly jeopardizing DuckTales oh. before it launched. And I kind of laughed. I, I've never been in a situation like that where... They want to be so mad at you and you're totally innocent and they realize that you're innocent. Uh, and I said, guys, I, I last worked on that two years ago, whatever it was. Uh, I said, I didn't have anything to do with this version. And then way back then, you know, there was no DuckTales. There was no TV animation division. Yeah. So I was, anyway, I was starting to wonder after was a lot, watching that it. was a lot of roundabout stuff. But yeah. basically after I worked with that group came back to features the world changed uh in that i did some development of features um and when i said world change i mean michael eisner and frank wells yeah you know and took over the studio and i got a call from those same computer consumer products people saying we know you're on vacation we know it's a sunday would you mind coming to michael eisner's house on sunday to talk about TV animation. Oh, wow. It's like, <laughs> duh. <laughs> guy's house. It's and like, as long was, as I'm not in trouble. <laughs> so there's like 10 of us there or something like that. And uh, Jim Magon, who was there, but worked with, you know, said we should make T-shirts that say that I'm one-tenth the... Oh, because some article in recapping the beginning talked about we gathered, you know, the top creative people at Disney... And so he won a T-shirt that said, I am one-tenth of the top creative people at Disney. <laughs> uh, anyway, what came across was this at that meeting, and that was Michael felt Disney was the premier name in animation. However, everywhere animation is, Disney should be. It's not like TV animation has to look like feature animation but it should be the best TV animation on the air. Oh, yeah. And the same thing if we got into short subjects or educational films. You know, we ended up just doing the two things, you know, TV and, and movies. Um, but I thought that's totally, you know, reasonable uh, thing to take. So anyway, they kind of talked about ideas. And I had my envelope and I showed Mickey and the Space Pirates. And they thought it was great. But they said, Mickey is too iconic he's too valuable we can't risk it as a first project it's we have to make sure we can pull this off um and we talked about other things and then one of the last things michael said you know what my kids came back from summer camp with this candy that i swear anything with the name gummy bears has got to be a hit (laughs) and so 
after the meeting, we, we were kind of debriefing ourselves in the parking lot outside his house. Um, and it was like, hey, he was pretty sharp. And, you know, here's our new boss of the company. Um, he was pretty sh- sharp and had great ideas. Well, I remember saying, except for that gummy bears idea, that's like saying pepperoni people, you know, doing a show about food. <laughs> uh, and they actually started, this is when I was away, because then I didn't go to TV animation. I was back at Features. Um, they actually did some development on that along the lines of, kind of what you assume you would think of like a Candyland thing and the villain was licorice whip. And <laughs> for a while they were considering you would watch an episode. And then at the end, like He-Man used to come on and do the moral of the show. They would have the characters come on and, and give a message about dental hygiene. <laughs> <laughs> so that someone was just thinking too hard. Uh, anyway, it wasn't until... You know, that wasn't working, and Jim Megan and, and Art Vitello kind of put their heads together and looked at Asterix and Obelix and said, they're gummy bears, they bounced because they're rubbery, and came up with the adventure show that, that is the gummy bears. Um, and I still love anyway, that show. Anyway, about then, I was, uh, <laughs> was going to leave Disney. That was about the uh, time I was going to quit because I just felt like there's no clear forward path from me for me it's like i had pitched this feature i tried to develop and it you know was dismissed in a few minutes you know it wasn't like i say oh is this fantastic thing it was like no but it did show how much work you put into something it's just going to go and and again it wasn't like i was being absorbed into the department as it existed i wasn't assigned to you know, great mouse detective or whatever was in work at the time. Um, so I was considered leaving and I thought maybe I could storyboard freelance. If I could storyboard and make about the same money, then my spare time, I could write something through my soul. Cause I had met science fiction writers as I was working on Epcot. Um, I thought maybe I could do that. And so one day, Michael Webster, who was then, I think his title was president of TV animation, uh, I happened to walk, coming down the walkway, he was coming up, and I said, hey, Michael, how you doing? Chatted, and I said, hey, do you have any, like, freelance storyboard opportunities? And he said, well, well we, I don't know that you want to do that. Why don't you come over and visit our place? Um, I had forgotten that they had wanted me a TV animation from the very beginning, um, I don't think it was ever given to me as a choice, but yeah, they would have wanted me. Um, anyway, you know, he, I went over there and he introduced me around as if I was coming over and I didn't say anything, <laughs> but it was like, I didn't say I was coming over, but anyway, I ended up going over there technically as an executive in that I was the creative manager in development I met with Jeffrey and he said, Tad, it's, it's not a one-way street. They could really use you, you know, go over there and, and try to help out. If it doesn't work out, you can come back. Um, this is obviously when the company was still very small. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, you know, it was kind of bumpy up parts and, you know, I was acting out of ignorance, but ended up over there and it suited me perfectly because up till then, I don't know how long I had been at Disney, maybe 12 years or I don't know, 74 to 82, whatever. I guess it wouldn't be that long. 
anyway, my job seemed to change every year and a half for two years. And now I was over at TV and my show changed basically that long. Uh, so I took over the uh, third season of Gummy Bears and then jumped right into developing uh, Rescue Rangers with Jim Magon. And then we were told, because he and I were the two creative leads of the department, and uh, Gary Kreisel, the boss, was saying, you can't both be on the same project. So um, Jim stayed in development and gave notes on the show. So basically every week he told me how he was doing things wrong. Uh, <laughs> and I... Did most of the show was taken off the show like I think I did forty five episodes something like that uh, and then developed Darkwing Duck which uh, well that was Jeffrey telling me to develop Double O Duck so it was thanks to Jeffrey and uh, James Bond spoof in Ducktales that uh, gave us the terror that flaps in the night. Which yeah, I can definitely see the shadow influences in the uh, the change of costume. I, I've seen some of the original drawings for for Double O Duck, where it's a very similar costume, just the color scheme was a little different. But, well, uh, the he was kind of a it was a white tuxedo basically, yeah, <laughs> and uh, a cape and a bandana mask. And to be fair, he never he only started. I recently found a drawing and posted it. Or he he didn't get into serious development where there was actually model sheets and things like that. So in all the conceptual work, it pretty much looks like Donald Duck wearing a mask and cape. <laughs> yeah. um, so we never got into, okay, how do we make this? Should he be wearing white? Should we do something else? Um, and it was basically, uh, I mean, I had worked on DuckTales, so we were familiar how many variations of beaks. We had to go broader with that. Yeah. Um and uh, Toby Sheldon was the guy who gave Darkwing his cheeks that he kind of took from Roger Rabbit uh, mm -hmm. and gave him a chin, even though he's a duck. Uh, but then <laughs> Launchpad, people think Launchpad is a pelican because of his jaw. Yeah. So anyway, the it was Jeffrey told me to pitch Double O Duck because he liked the name. He felt like he always expected you to do a great show. But he felt like if you had a name, and Eisner felt this too, if you have a great name that kind of punches through a bit, you get the audience to tune in, and then it's up to you to keep them. Um, and we developed it. It didn't really move until we added Goslin, and uh, which gave it the Disney heart that Jeffrey was wanting. And uh, I mean, the main thing is, I the, my first shot was just a spy parody, and Jeffrey said, "This is just a spy parody." Uh, and it was like, great, me and the boss think the same. Uh, <laughs> then he told me to redo it. And that's when I got into the shadow and the green hornet. And really, in a lot of ways, Doc Savage. I've recently found some old development. Um, and Darkwing had a team of guys that worked with him. And it was his sidekick who was more, who was, I mean, Launchpad was there too. But his, they had another sidekick was the guy who actually was the competent one. Uh, <laughs> he was going to be the guy who then, made the gadgets, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and I think, uh, well, no, it was actually more, he was smart. It wasn't just the gadgets, it was like tactics and everything, you know. Um, this good old Darkwing, he messed up a lot. <laughs> yeah, I had totally forgotten, but his name for a while was Trevor Muddlefoot. Hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, it makes sense in yeah. that it was Trevor is the romantic kind of, you know, 
ace guy and then muddlefoot is the goof yeah uh, frankly i'm not sure why we changed it um but again my mind totally had forgotten that so yeah. uh anyway but obviously when we have a good name we keep it and that's yeah. what's next door which really did help add some more of the humor to it. I, I one of the things I loved about Darkwing Duck is not only that it have the heart of it with him and Goslin and and trying to adjust to adopting a daughter, but then having the wacky neighbors that that are kind of annoying, but you love them anyway. That he yeah. deals with in normal life, it gave a nice blend of having trying to have a normal sort of life and then overnight becoming this costume adventurer and messing everything up until he finally gets it right. It just it was brilliant. Yeah. Well, I mean, Darkwing was a huge change for the company because this is before Aladdin and the idea of breaking the fourth wall. There were discussions like, well, wait, how how can you have any jeopardy of this if you can drop a safe on him and he steps out of it like an accordion? <laughs> and, uh, you know, how would you handle, you know, any sort of suspense going to commercial? And I said, well, I will play scary music and all the characters will act scared. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and that's exactly it, you know. Uh, and that worked. The conceit worked. Because my feeling was we should be, my goal was to do a 22-minute short subject, but with Disney heart. Yeah. So, and a real story. And, and I think and in our best episodes, that's exactly what we did. <laughs> well, that was the fun. I mean, you mentioned yeah. the flat four and the two best rogue galleries our flash and batman you know oh yeah and oh yeah and i from the silver age and then you know spider-man probably after that Woo-hoo. big spider-man fan but yeah definitely i even like that you had uh, like Bushroot, you know being one of the first villains you come across and he's even got a tragic backstory you kind of feel bad for Bushroot. yeah first. my favorite villains are definitely uh bush and megavolt oh yeah especially <laughs> megavolt as um written by doug langdale who then went on not only to become a story editor, but then uh, did the Weekenders and Earthworm Jim. Oh, wow. Yeah, so you've got that guy. Doug has a great, and Dave the Barbarian, and uh, just finished Puss in Boots for DreamWorks. Wow. Uh, and he just has just the best kooky sense of humor that I always loved, and it was perfect for Megavolt. I mean, I could always, I've given this example a lot, but, it's like Megavolt robs a jewelry store. Okay, I could come up with that. But instead of jewels, he robs the light bulbs in the dis- display case. I could come up with that. But what I couldn't come up with is Doug's idea of Bushroot grabs all the bulbs in his arms, rushes, rushes to the sidewalk and says, Be free, my lovelies! And flings <laughs> them, you know, and of course they all shatter on the ground and he's, you know, distraught. Um, that is just genius as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so that was the fun of Megavolt. And, you know, we had episodes where they kind of worked together. And then Bushroot was sympathetic, you know. Mm-hmm. He could have, you know, eventually... Well, for the most part, he just wanted to be left alone. He was incredibly lonely, and it's like, you know, who wouldn't build a girlfriend? And it's not his fault she turned into a vampire potato, you know? (laughs) It's just how things happen. Yeah, because that's kind of how he became Bushroot, is all for for the girl he couldn't get. Yeah. So, (laughs) again, those were the, you know, the most fun 
things for me is is taking the wackiest ideas and and building those characters that still had some heart and you know some backstory to them yeah that's if you can develop a, a full character out of a villain it's always more fun yeah. You know, if you understand their motivations, then, you know, and I think that's even one of the things that I guess that was around about the time uh, we were. Well, I guess we weren't quite at Batman the Animated Series, but it was coming pretty quick. And well, I think the, uh, we have a connection to the Batman the Animated Series in that when we were told we couldn't use the name Double O legally, uh, we had a contest to pick a new name. And I just uncovered a scrapbook that had four huge pages of every double D alliteration you can think of. Wow. Uh, the prize was like 500 bucks. Yeah. Uh, and the winner was Alan Burnett who came up with Darkwing, And I said, that's great. I, you know, I never thought of Nightwing at all. That was like a duh moment. But <laughs> yeah. I said, but Darkwing sounds much like Trevor Muddlefoot. It's like Darkwing sounds almost too dramatic let's put duck with it and it'll be the combination of the dramatic and the comic. And that's exactly what our show is. Um, and Alan won, got his $500 and then left and, uh, not too long after and became the story editor of Bruce Tim's Batman, the animated series. Wow. And in fact, he was the first guy they worked with, I think who really got what they wanted out of the show so he and paul dini and you know you know all those guys work together to really create a memorable memorable series so we'll just say we so owe we it can, all the dark we wing duck. say we warmed them up a little right because you know? that's part of what had the, the batman the animated series work so well is that a lot of the villains you had some backstory i mean they revolutionized mr freeze over there yeah giving exactly. him some more backstory and suddenly he's a compelling character uh, and even yeah. characters and I you, never uh, heard of were good. Actually, if you go on YouTube and search for uh, Batman Darkwing theme, there's a guy who's done a brilliant uh, editing job. of. Go- he went through every episode of Batman to find what he needed. Yeah. But he basically cut Batman to the Darkwing Duck theme song. Yeah, I think you, just, you posted it, it on Facebook, brilliant. I think. Yeah, too. exactly. Yeah. Oh, I loved that. I loved it. It was great. <laughs> So, um, going over back to Chip and Dale, uh, you were one of the creators behind the Chip and Dale uh, Rescue Rangers, weren't you? Yes. To begin with, it was uh, it was going to be the, the Rescue Rangers. Yeah, yeah, it was going to be the Rescuers apparently at first, and they got turned into Chip and Dale somehow. Mm, if I've heard that right. Actually, it was actually a, a longer. The original thing was called the Pitch was by um, Ken Koontz, David Weimers. And again, I talked about how sometimes just a name can get things started. Um, on one of our gong shows for Michael and Jeffrey, uh, we pitched Miami Mice. And they loved it. And someone said, well, how can it's all about drugs. How do you do that? And he said, well, it can be cheese, you know, whatever. But it was like, again, the name was enough to get things going. I don't know whether we did it on our own or whether legal said something or whatever, but we turned Miami mice into Metro mice and the, it was developed by Carl gears who later did Winnie the Pooh. Carl gears had done the, um, Oh, the dungeons and dragons series. In oh, Saturday. Wow. Um, was that it? Was it just simply called dungeons and dragons? Yeah. I, I remember it, watching it was, that one. 
Yeah, it was a great show, and he was well-known for that, but he was a huge Disney fan, loved Disney. Anyway, um, and Jim Magon, so the you know three of us developed that, and then uh, Carl and I, mostly Carl, I believe, wrote the script, um, and it introduced a villain named Fat Cat. Oh, yeah. And pretty much was the Fat Cat, as we know him. Um, again, we never never get rid of a good idea yeah uh anyway that existed and it just died there um i don't remember specifics although i found a piece of artwork that i think i posted recently and they're holding guns and it's like well maybe that was kind of a no uh and maybe it just got pitched to the network i mean back then you it wasn't for a syndicated show it was for a network and maybe they just said no um anyway that kind of got us going and that's when they said we had brought up rescuers in general saying you know that movie is from a series of books so it's designed to be a series we could do that but jeffrey said no we're going to investigate doing feature film series um and when they you know when we I don't know whether it was on Metro Mice or when we finally did Rangers. He said, make this your rescuers. So, yes, there's a connection, but not not like we started develop. We never developed the rescuers. Again, that was the show I I mean, the movie that I started with. Yeah, um, it was just, oh, that's a series of books. Yeah, but we're doing something with it. So you do something else. Oh, OK. That's yeah. as far as it went. Well, I guess uh, at the time they were working on the rescuers down under. So, well, that was. I want to say that was a little later. That's what came out of it. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that was the, you know, the sequel. Yeah. Yeah, because Chip and Dale was definitely one of my favorites uh, with Disney Afternoon. I remember watching that one pretty regularly, uh, which I'm excited to hear that they were working on a, a film based on Chip and Dale's Rescue Rangers. Nice to have them coming back. Well, we'll see. I mean, it was announced a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and the first time... I heard that it might still be alive was um, because the DuckTales guys that were told they could use all the Disney afternoon uh, except for Chip and Dale because of the movie. Uh, It was like, oh, there's still a movie. Cool. Um, So who knows? I mean, that's just normal Hollywood development. So whether they have a script or not. Fingers crossed. Uh, I'd love to see it. (laughs) Yeah. So... I think most people know that that uh, again, Rescue Rangers started as Kit Colby, one guy who had a, a leather flight jacket with a sheepskin collar, uh, and we pitched it basically the same meeting that I pitched um, Bubba Duck and Gizmo Duck, although it was Robo Duck at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, they said we love the show, but we don't feel the main character. And the main character was really, he was almost too capable um, when I read the old descriptions of him. And there was the feeling of, well, he seems capable, but he's actually getting by on the skin of his teeth. Anyway, they didn't feel anything for him. So they said, you know, just redo it. It's a great show. Uh, and I even stupidly said, are you sure you just, it's because you don't know the characters yet? Or we haven't seen them fleshed out? And they said, no, we got these two characters, meaning Bubba Duck and at the time, Robo Duck. Uh, we got them in two sentences, you know, in a picture. Uh, so go back in, you know, get back to work. 
so then the next part of the meeting, we were going through, we had DuckTales was, you know, well underway and big success. And they said, what other classic characters? And we went down the list of, what is it, the seven characters or what? You know, Mickey, no, still not ready. Donald, well, we did him. He's hard to do, hard to carry a show because of his voice. Let's hold on. Goofy? Oh, definitely. Because Goofy was the least sacrosanct because his cartoon shorts he was an everyman. Yeah. I mean, he, there were, it was full of hundreds of goofy characters. So there was, it wasn't so much goofy as the goof. Uh, and the goof was like the generic character. <laughs> so we always, there was a bunch of development on different goofy shows. Um, and then we got to, you know, Pluto, no, and mentioned Chip and Dale. And Michael said, that's it. Put that, those guys in that show. And Jeffrey said, home run. <laughs> and we're off and going and because we suddenly had two leads instead of one it you know changed the characters although gadget had been part of the original pitch and a kangaroo mouse who eventually became monterey jack was there and then we dumped the nearsighted bald eagle and the asian cricket and um the chameleon who could do any color but she could do plaid but it hurt uh, <laughs> Anyway, and then, you know, once you have two characters, you start figuring out the personality, you know, personalities that they're going to bounce off of. And that created the team. Yeah. And uh, apparently there's some influencers from Indiana Jones and Magnum P.I. for Chip and Dale. Well, actually, um, I was surprised that people were surprised of it, basically, years (laughs) later, in that he had the exact same coat that Kit Colby wore in the drawings. I mean, he was wearing the jacket with the fur collar. Um, and then I forget whose idea was to put the Indiana Jones hat on him. And I was really, and it might have been mine, but I don't know. Uh, all I know is I felt very self-conscious about it because I felt it was so on the nose. It would be like, you know, stealing a character. We had a thing where often in development, you'd show a tough guy and you'd put a scar in his mouth. And it became a rule to never do that. Because the idea was, it's a cheat. It sells the character, but you can't do it on television. They can't smoke. You have to create the character without the cigar. And I kind of felt, without thinking it through in that detail, that the Indiana Jones hat may be something in that category. Anyway, I was overruled. Frankly, I don't even think I brought up the objection. I just felt guilty about it. and the Magnum P.I. thing was more playful. It's like once you have one chipmunk in clothes, you can't let the other dude be naked. Right. And I just thought, <laughs> what else would you put Dale on in, you know, other than a Hawaiian shirt? And, um, you know, Magnum P.I. was on the air. So yep. <laughs> he did wear red Hawaiian shirts and all the publicity. So that's that was the fun. But it wasn't like we, you know, took anything from the character. Yeah. For that matter. When you think of it, Chip isn't very much like Indiana Jones, for that matter. Not really. But it's just fun having the look there, and even knowing yeah. the connection that Tom Selleck was almost Indiana Jones before he went to Magnum P.I. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, the funny thing is that even at the time when that meme first hit the internet, I said, you know, nobody got the pun of Zipper, the fly. I said that to my son, who had asked if I had seen the meme, and, I, and he stopped and went, I never got that either, so... I was very self-conscious. I thought they'd stop us from calling Zipper the Fly. So. Yeah. <laughs> it's 
right there in the front of your pants. Come yeah. on. You know, I never actually thought of that until you said it. There you go. <laughs> I was so damn clever, didn't realize it. <laughs> wow, that is something you really got away with. <laughs> yeah, I slipped the pun into the minds of America. <laughs> the world. Because oh, I always just thought, oh, he's zipper because he's fast. Okay, but yeah, because yeah, he zips around, and that's yep. exactly you know, those brains basically stop there. Oh my goodness! <laughs> oh, but uh, you know, to uh, keep going on a few other things that you got to work on uh, really quick. You got to work on a couple sequels for Aladdin, which I know I saw one of the straight to video sequels, and that kind of stemmed off to the Aladdin series, which was excellent. Well, the it it. It didn't. It was literally the Aladdin series. What happened is we used to, and Ducktales has great ones that Jim Magon did. Of um, you would start the series with like four or five part stories that were designed to be run vertically on Friday nights, meaning they are stacked in the schedule, so it's like a big movie premiere. And then the following Monday, the series would start, and then the quote movie would be broken back up into episodes and just play within the 65 episodes um so i had met some mid-level guy over at um home video and i called him up and said you know technically we're doing the sequel to aladdin are you interested and they weren't i mean he took it to higher ups and got no traction on it uh, and all I was trying to do, it wasn't like I was a genius, all I was trying to do is to find an extra revenue stream for our shows because our budgets were getting tight and I felt like, wow, if there was some way to get a little more money from these episodes, then maybe our budget could be justified at staying up. Um, anyway, it it uh, they weren't interested until they released Aladdin the movie, and I called the same guy again, and he floated the idea again, and this time they were very interested. And uh, this was pointed out to me later, so I have no problem <laughs> repeating it. Um, again, our boss came in, and we were going over the story, which was fairly weak at the time, arguably still is. Um, he gave a bunch of notes. I said, okay, well, we got to get this done by March 14th, whatever the date was. And he said, why? I said, well, because home video is actually interested in releasing this. So we got to get to them first. And he said, don't worry about this. You know, that's gravy. You know, now what he was actually saying was hundred percent correct. Worry about the story first. It's like, if you're going to go in and pitch a TV show to a network or a studio, don't talk about the toys. Talk about the show. It doesn't matter that you've got this great idea that could be a board game and a video game. No, don't talk spinoffs. Pitch the idea to the person who's there listening for an idea for a TV show. Um, so anyway, it was pointed out later to me that he left the room and I said, okay, we have to do the notes, but we have to do them by March 14th because this has got to get over to video. Again, I was just trying to protect budgets. Well, so the I think... The video cost somewhere around three and a half million dollars wow. and made something like two hundred million dollars domestic uh, or close to it. One hundred eighty to two million and you know more worldwide and, of course, started that whole business. So it wasn't like it begat the series. It was the series. It was the first bunch of episodes that were setting it up. Um, and then later on, we got to, you know. Do a, a second one that this time was 
designed as a film. And that was Aladdin and the King of Thieves. Uh, and in the middle of it, after we had actually shipped part of it, uh, they suddenly said, hey, Robin Williams is coming back to do the genie. So and we tossed We basically brought back what we had done, which allowed Robin to work off the visuals, not in an ADR way where you try to match mouth moves, but just, oh, that's goofy looking stuff. What if you do this? You know, and, you know, he just provided tons of stuff. Um, so anyway, I did a, a bunch of videos after that until I got back into series with Hercules. And then Buzz Lightyear. And oh, then yes. Atlantis. I loved the Buzz Lightyear series. Uh, I, I like that it introduced all these new characters into Star Command. So you got it more of a feel of like the Buzz Lightyear world. And maybe maybe that cartoon, as we were seeing it, is exactly how Andy would have learned about the character, you know? Well, that was the conceit. But really, and I think John Laster was never happy with it. because really? Wow. Yeah, because well, all you have to do is look at the beginning of Toy Story 2. And I forget there's also one in Toy Story 3. I think there is. But you get it starts with a Buzz Lightyear adventure mm-hmm. as he saw it. So it's, you know, it's full of incredible gags and incredible adventure and close escapes. And, you know, it was one of the, and ours is trying to capture the feeling of of what we saw in Toy Story. But the problem was a lot of the original Toy Story the humor came from Buzz being in denial that he was a toy. He was a fish out of <laughs> yeah. water. We had the fish in water. Mm-hmm. So it was like, what do we do here? So we came up with the show we did. But in John's mind, I think the show should have been that all-out adventure. And the difference is, I'm sure for that three minutes or whatever it is at the beginning of the movie, they spent months and months and months and months. And it's like, we have to get out of script every Friday. So yeah. we kind of have to move faster. Um, anyway, I, I think it's a great little show. I don't think yeah. it's enough. Um, and the so, characters were fun. It was, it was great. I liked it. Yeah. And then, uh, pardon me for a second. Um, after that, we did a show on based on Atlantis called team Atlantis. And then the sh- when the movie, uh, open to disappointing numbers. Uh, at the time, the Disney afternoon was gone. So yeah. it was going to be part of one Saturday morning, which made absolutely no sense because one Saturday morning was more Nickelodeon, very educational, mm-hmm. or at least act of that. You're not going to put a basically a PG cartoon series on after it. Uh, so as soon as the movie, as soon as the studio withdrew support for the movie, Everybody said, that's it for the series. Luckily, we had enough in production that we could at least cut three together as, again, a sequel to Atlantis called Milo's Return. But you can watch that and you'll see three separate episodes, basically, just a lot of connective material. And that was basically my chance to do... I had been, I pitched Hellboy at Disney, actually. Wow. Uh, <laughs> because I really loved the, the comic. and Yes. It. And I said, well, I'm never going to get to do Hellboy, so this is going to be our closest thing. And that, man, the crew was jazzed about it, especially the early scripts were just really good. They were adventure scripts, but not the normal thing you see on TV, because it was more like, in some ways, X-Files, plus mm-hmm. with Disney Heart. It just didn't play like a normal... I mean, now shows are doing it, and certainly shows that Greg Wiseman has done both in and out of Disney, you yeah. know, smack of it. 
but we had also a very broad characters uh, to play with. It was just a very unique thing. And, um, you know, we had to, on literally Friday the 13th, we had to lay off 80 people, Oof. you know, the series. Because, you know, as we, and we just got to finish up with a small crew. Uh, and, of course, later on, I did get to do Hellboy. So Yeah, and worked directly with Mike Mignola to do it, which was awesome. Yeah, Mike Mignola was... Uh, oh, is that yeah, how you I mean, say his name? Started, Mignola. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's easier to say if you actually don't look at it. Uh, <laughs> anyway... Uh, Mike actually, we worked with him on Atlantis because he had, you know, it was kind of designed after his work and, and oh. he had done a lot of development work with it. And uh, he basically designed, he did conceptual drawings of monsters through it. Uh, and he was a joy to work with. And uh, obviously, I got to work much closer with him uh, on the Hellboy series. Uh, and one of the things I enjoyed about the Hellboy comics was how he would pull enough folklore and monsters in and then made it believable that this is actually happening and then throw a Hellboy right in the middle of trying to prevent some horrible thing from happening. Oh, it's just so clever and so fun. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's just fantastic. One of the most creative people I've ever met, you know, and just builds on ideas and ideas like that. Uh, and now, you know, I'm retired now. Thank you so much for coming on to the Neverland Podcast. It was awesome. And if you have any big projects coming up, you decide, like, any of these store ideas, you want to write a book or something, you let us know. You can come back and tell us all about it. All right. Will do. Thank you for listening to the Neverland Podcast. We invite you back next week for more fun and adventure. Until then, remember to keep a pixie in your pocket. It's that young at heart, positive attitude that you can share with others. And remember to visit our website at NeverlandPodcast.com. There you can find links to our news page, our shop, our contact page, where you can easily send an email to podcast at NeverlandPodcast.com. You can also find our Neverlanders page, where you can find out how to become an official Lost Boy or Pixie, because girls are too clever to get lost. Become a real Neverlander! Please feel free to leave us a voicemail at 816-226-6492. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at NeverlandPCast. And like our Neverland Podcast fan page on Facebook. We also have a group on Facebook for you to join. We also appreciate your support to keep the Neverland Podcast up and running. Visit Patreon.com slash NeverlandPodcast to donate to Keeping the Pixie Dust Alive. Copyright content featured on the Neverland Podcast is copyright of their respective creators and used under fair use license. All original content is copyright of Blue Band Productions, and a very special thanks to Yeehaw Bob Jackson at yeehawbob.com for our new ending music. God bless! Yeah! Hello everybody, this is Yeehaw Bob Jackson. Neverland Podcast, we love you. Neverland Podcast, we love you. Neverland Podcast, it's true. Neverland Podcast, we love you. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then... 
place a $5 wager on any sport, you'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Mike Rowe here with a few thoughts on my favorite sweatshirt. A classic zip-up hoodie that used to be navy blue but has since faded to what the fashionistas call a distressed indigo. It's 13 years old, soft as a flannel bathrobe, and after a few hundred dirty jobs, demonstrably and undeniably indestructible. This is the kind of sweatshirt girlfriends like to permanently borrow, but I've held on to this one because I got it from American Giant. American Giant makes all their stuff right here in the USA so they can control every link in their own supply chain. That matters, because when you buy American Giant, you not only get great quality, you create jobs for people in factory towns all over the country. No pressure, but if you give a damn about the business of making things in America, you got to support the companies who are doing it right. Go to American-Giant.com slash Mike to get 20% off your first order. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike.